Welcome everyone to Just Cause with Derek A. Bardwell, profiling the people and the movements who are taking on some of the biggest social issues of our times. In each episode, you will hear from those who are challenging society's prevailing culture of competition over collaboration, individual over community, acquisition over mission, preservation over progression, factors that systematically quietens people with valid alternatives to the status quo. You will hear the views, approaches, tactics and inventions of those people who are reimagining our public services, speaking truth to power, providing real hope and opening the doors for the marginalised to move to the centre. Some weeks we'll be talking about mental health, in other weeks sport, serious youth violence, tech, music or philanthropy. The constant will be that Just Cause will highlight the work of people with bold visions, those who build their strategies through the lens of the people and communities who suffer the most under our current systems, those with alternatives that, to paraphrase Angela Davis, address racism, male dominance, homophobia, class bias and other structures of domination. In short, we will talk to those who are setting the standards that should be met. On this podcast, we are welcoming Michelle Moore and Anna Kessel, MBE. Michelle Moore is a leadership consultant, speaker, coach, former athlete and equality campaigner. Anna Kessel is the women's sports editor at The Telegraph and co-founder of Women in Football. Welcome both. Thank you. Morning. <laughs> Morning. Um, First, I wanted to kick off um, with 2019. It seems like 2019 was a big or significant year for women in sport. Has that really been the case? Has this been a really watershed, massive moment this year? Um, in a lot of ways, yeah. I mean, well, Telegraph Women's Sport Department launched, yes. <laughs> nearly fell over when I saw the adverts that it was, that it was happening mm -hmm. earlier in the year. Um, the, the numbers around the Women's World Cup were incredible, you know, over 12 million watching on BBC. So does 12 million watch the... Watch the, one of the England games, okay. yeah, incredible. Um, and, and just the sort of swell of interest across the nation, women's football being on all the front pages for the first time, um, you know, all, all of those things are undeniably mm -hmm. um, momentous, but... I have a bit of a, a pet hate for these watershed moments, these tipping point kind yeah. of things, because I don't think anything ever happens on a one pivotal moment. You mm -hmm. know, there have been so many different stages throughout history to okay. get us here. And it, I always think it's important that we look back and remember, mm -hmm. you know, every single one of those pioneers who pushed and pushed and, and all of those small moments and steps build up to where we are now. Um, we're going to touch upon that in a second in terms of what how we got here. What do you think some of the impact will be of this particular year um, going into 2020, Michelle? What, what do you think, you know, the momentum's carried? If, if we're seeing more women's sport in the front pages, um, more media coverage, what do you think some of the impacts might be of some of that? I think it's, as Anna said, incredibly exciting when we have our athletes, you know, representing the country and doing well and creating this swell of you know, national pride, if you like. And that has an impact on the psyche of young women and how they see themselves in sport. And if they are able to look on, see on TV, on mainstream um, television, on the BBC, some of their role models and their icons, then that has an impact on their view of sport generally. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to participate in sport. Mm -hmm. It just means that they have a, 
a more positive view of what it means to be a sportswoman. And they see it in a more normalised way. They see it on the front of the newspaper and they see it on TV. Now, what happens is that that creates a space where it's, oh, not just the girls seeing that, but boys seeing that, young boys seeing that. And they think, oh, actually, you know, this is a normal thing. The problem is, is that happens around the World Cup. That happened around some elements of the netball. And I always talk about the Netball World Cup as well, because I'm an avid netball player. Yes. And and where, how does that translate into some meaningful action where we know that then they're going to take part in the sport? Just by watching sport does not actually mean there's going to be an increase in participation because there's such an ecosystem around what affects and what impacts on particularly girls and their participation in sports. And so I think that's the development and the next bit that has to actually be looked at. So none of this is in silos. So we know that media coverage increases. We know that there's a a rise in in people watching and looking and and reading about women's sport. But the thing is, actually, how do we address some of the, the bigger, you know, more negative issues that go alongside some of that? Let's um, talk about some of the steps to getting to where we have got to. So we've come to 2019. What would you guys say have been some of the pivotal things, the key athletes, the key events, the key policy changes that's enabled us to get to this point where, again, we've had a moment, but then to speak about what we can learn from the past to know how we'll learn for what we'll do in the future. I think um, one of the key moments for me when I look back over 15, 16 years in sports journalism and how things were when I started, you know, I remember the England women's rugby team getting to the World Cup final when I started out and I think we did maybe two or three hundred words on it. You know, wow. it was just like that. That was what the year most. Was that, that would have been 2006. 2006, yeah, okay. in Canada, I'm pretty sure. Um, so, yeah, I would say one of the, the most seismic moments was probably the London Olympic Games. Okay. Um, I remember really clearly how Jessica Ennis, mm-hmm. Hill now, uh, was the face of that. Um, you know, they, they painted her face on one of the fields that you flew over when you came into Heathrow Airport. Mm. She was everywhere. She was on every single billboard. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really significant. Uh-huh. Um this new visibility of of sportswomen mm-hmm. and bringing them to a much wider audience and immediately after that games and the amazing success that we had and the way that you know all the country got caught up in it questions started to be asked from outside the sports department in the media and, yeah. w- and when you consider that the sports department is very much a, a bubble that yeah. exists separately to mm-hmm. the rest of the media organization mm-hmm. so you might have a very diverse newspaper in terms of you know, gender balance, maybe even ethnic minority input in sport is completely different. It's a okay. completely different world mm-hmm. and it and it long has been that way. So um, sport is very white male, very few women um, involved and, and very few, very little scrutiny from anywhere else. Sport gets on with it. They do a very good <laughs> job and we won't ask questions. Mm-hmm. But for the first time after that games, people did start to ask okay. questions. I remember at The Guardian, um, the editor at the time, you know, started asking questions in conference. Why aren't we having more mm. sportswomen in, in our pages? What, what's that about? And he wasn't naturally interested in sport, but he could see suddenly mm. that there was this disparity that didn't add up. You had people asking questions in Parliament. Maria Miller at the time was early heading up yeah, DCMS. Course, yeah. And mm. she really banged the drum and came down really hard on the sports media and started asking questions. Mm-hmm. And it 
it was really for me the first time that sports media had been held to account that they'd had this scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that kind of ecosystem that Michelle was talking about and the different parts that each sector plays, sports media does play a big role in, in how women and girls feel about themselves <laughs> physically, <laughs> you know, every single way that you can imagine. So to, to have impact in that area mm-hmm. is profound. And, and that is what happened. And, and did, did you feel that as well? I know you did a lot of work on London 2012. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that wave of change? Um, you would have been working at uh, Michelle in schools mm-hmm. and, and um, with lots of community groups at that mm-hmm. particular time. Did you feel that wave of change um, in terms of ge- gender disparities and the reduction of that at that particular point, even if just on a symbolic level? I think really what what happened is, you know, the bid announcement happened in 2005. It was incredibly exciting. It was based on this whole idea of multiculturalism. Look, we've got every child underneath the, the rainbow here. We're going for um, the, the, the games. And, you know, no one can forget Denise Lewis and kind of David Beckham jumping up and yeah, down course, when the announcement yeah. was made. In the beige um, suits, as yeah, I remember. It was all a bit, yeah. was all a bit mm, not sure about that. Uh, I'm not sure about that suit. But I remember as I was... Uh, you know, I was an assistant head teacher in a in a school a sports college, which was a large secondary school in Eltham, and I'd persuaded our head teacher to get all of the young people in the hall for the announcement, and it was incredibly exciting. And what happened after that is this this build up and this momentum that goes with the the run up to an amazing mega sport mega event. And what London 2012 did, which was really good, is they decided, right, how can we create a platform where all young people can be involved in that? And that's where the work that I did in Greenwich, which was a host borough, was about coalescing young people and through the school's network around the ideals and the values of the games in with, you know, determination, equality, respect, everything that goes with Olympiaism. And so we did that within Greenwich in a way that was about, yes, we took advantage of the opportunities that came out of LOCOG for young people to be involved as performers in opening and closing ceremonies, with young people running their own torch relays in Greenwich in terms of how we interpreted it. And that build up to the Games was actually really significant um, around young girls being a part of of all of that, mm-hmm. seeing muscular athletes b- yeah. performing and seeing themselves in those um, athletes. And we did some work in terms of researching the impact of the work that we had done with our young people. And mm-hmm. the three things that came out after the Games was that they were really proud that the Olympics had come to their part of town, yeah. that it was actually happening down the road from where they go to school. Mm-hmm. So their sense of identity was enhanced by the Games. Seeing athletes perform at their, the highest level was about excellence to them. Mm-hmm. And so they saw how, and that translated into learning. So that translated into seeing themselves do well in the classroom. And the third thing was around disability. Mm-hmm. There were, our Paralympians became household names. Yeah. You know, H- Hannah Hurricane Cockcroft, Johnny mm-hmm. Peacock, the mm-hmm. fastest man on one leg. These young people hadn't heard of these people before. Mm-hmm. And so those were hugely significant. So when I'm asked about, you know, who is it that stood out for you? Well, actually, the Paralympians stood out for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 whole experience from 
bid time, so actually games time, was very significant for the general population of the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a, a part of why we can we created this platform where also women were on on a in, their visibility was on a an a, a heart enhanced level, yeah. which was hugely powerful for everybody to see. And it was also the games where you know, women's athlete, the the number of women's events in terms of the medal numbers was higher than any other previous game. So the opportunities for women were more, and that's actually just in uh, that has affected the Commonwealth Games um, recent announcement. Actually, that they're going to be having for the first time ever, there'll be more medal opportunities for women than men in the next Commonwealth Games. And so there are, rather than saying like the, there were these athletes, there were those athletes, I always kind of point to the bigger impact that it has on bro- more young people more broadly. Mm-hmm. So, sorry. I was just going to say on the, on the Paralympics, that's such an important point. And I think for the first time from a media perspective, mm-hmm. you know, it's the first time that we really wrote about parasport in, in the sports section. And initially it was, it was based around this kind of, oh, aren't they amazing? What's their backstory? What have they done? It's so inspirational. And then it became more nuanced and sophisticated as disabled people themselves started to say, hang on, we are not here to be your inspo porn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you need to start changing your narrative. So mm-hmm. these really important moments change society in a big way and, and, and language is definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. Um and between 2012 and now, last seven years, what would you say are some of the steps that have carried on the momentum from not just London 2012, but just in terms of, you know, um, everything from um, representation in the media, more coverage on television, right through to just general engagement and participation? Has there, has there been any key steps during this the last six, seven years, would you say? Um, from a media perspective, Straight after London 2012, there was a report that mm-hmm. it was commissioned, I think, in 2013. And they spent, uh, I don't know, six months maybe looking at sports media mm-hmm. and, and gender representation in it. And the stats were pretty shocking. And those stats okay. I hear on a regular ever since, um, you know, it was, well, it was 0.4% of the entire sponsorship pot that goes to sport goes to women. At that time, 0.4 percent, and, wow. and everyone that, that even blew me away. And I was mm-hmm. in the I was in the industry. Um, the you know the the lack of representation in the sports pages. It was two percent of newspaper sports coverage was going to women. It was only seven percent on TV. Um, those stats, I think, had, had had a huge impact. They were uh-huh. they were commissioned by Women in Sport at the time, was Women's Sports and Fitness Foundation. Um, And I've heard them quoted ever since. And off the back of that, people started to scrutinise much more. Another Mm -hmm. report came out. It was 1.8% of um, sports bylines in newspapers were female. Um, Then BCOMS, the Black Collective of Media and Sports, started doing their research into um, BAME representation in in sports media. And again, the stats were appalling, particularly when they looked at black and brown women. Um, So, yeah, that measuring something is really mm-hmm. important and until you measure something and give the results it's hard to to force change i think do, do we have any update on that to see how much that's changed i'm, I'm assuming that some of it has changed and, and we'll get into the cultural and systemic bits in a second um because i know stats can't tell the full story but has there been a follow-up to that report have we seen any no there hasn't and so i guess the change is kind of anecdotal around yeah. the Women's World Cup, seeing the front pages, the yeah. number of reporters that went to report on, on the tournament. If you mm-hmm. look at previous World Cups, 
they might newspapers might have sent a writer to turn up from the semi-finals perhaps or maybe one writer to cover England mm-hmm. um, often that writer might not have been paid it might have been somebody that was drafted in from elsewhere okay. it, it yeah. was that kind of a setup um, so over the summer a complete change you know the Telegraph sent six people to go and report on, on the Women's World Cup um, four of which were you know very senior male writers who mm-hmm. I don't think had ever been to a Women's World Cup before mm-hmm. um, so that indicates that very I think seismic change Excellent what about um, you Michelle have you seen any uh, has there been any critical points that you've seen over the last six seven years in terms of um, change? I think one of the things that I always kind of talk about really is participation and the yeah. impact of mega events on participation by young people. Because what we have at the moment is sport in this country, it isn't representative of all of the diversity within the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, we have our uh, national teams that represent um, former school boys and girls from private school education. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lack of representation around ethnic and cultural diversity in some sports. And I think what we have is a, a system that needs to be kind of really uh, rehauled, if you like. Mm-hmm. And what the London 2012 showed us is that certain sports, for example, uh, in boxing, I always talk about the Nicola Adams effect, her amazing win and her mm-hmm. gold medal. You saw a real increase in young women taking part in boxing, which Mm -hmm. was kind of a really new development. Um, And that is actually one of the stats that has sustained. But the other sports, you've seen a slight increase in, uh, you saw a slight increase in in athletics, the Jessica Ennis Hill effect and swimming, but actually those actually tailed off um, because they haven't been sustained because of the development and the structures around national governing bodies Mm -hmm. and the tightening of the purse strings and the funding that goes to those governing bodies. And so you have this kind of real mismatch, but you see the rise of new sports like minority sports like Park Run and Tough Mudder that kind of mm-hmm. just arise out of this idea of of sport being more accessible and a bit hip and a bit cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are exciting developments around that. Yeah. But I often talk to, to teachers and they're like, oh, yes, you know, after the games, we had lines and lines of young people wanting to join the, the after school football club, the tennis club. And then by, you know, by Christmas, it dropped off completely. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the things that, that was behind the success of London 2012 was an initiative called the School Sports Partnerships, which was a structured, organised way in which school sport and PE was organised in this country with schools working together collaboratively with the Youth Sport Trust, looking at two hours of high quality PE in school sport Mm -hmm. and then two hours plus in the community. And I was one of the partnership development managers way back when um, and we're going back some time now. But they were hugely successful and we're behind. It was a coordinated and organised way to get PE and school sport into schools at a high level. Now that that, you know, that went just before the games. And now we have a really fragmented way of delivering PE and sport with funding going to head teachers and no real understanding of how to work and develop a PE strategy that makes a difference, that creates creates um, engagement for all and participation and as a byproduct your superstars of the future and so that was a key driver and actually in terms of policy we'd need to revisit that. I mean that's that's a good segue in terms of what's next 
moving forward. So from the coverage to participation in terms of um, that increasing engagement of, of girls in sport, because um, I don't have the statistics to hand, but, you know, um, girls after the age of 11 or 12, there's a huge fallout largely because of early experiences of sport. Um, and it's something that you touch upon in your book, Eat, Sweat, Play, quite a bit in terms of, um, you know, sports participation at a young age. How do we convert this high level of press coverage and interest that we have at the moment into the type of policies that ensures that more girls are engaging in sport from a young age, but also that that's sustained engagement? That's a very hard question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the stats at the moment are it's 8% of teenage girls are doing the recommended amount of physical activity per day. Eight. Eight. 8%. I mean, if that doesn't... If I was in government and I saw that stat, I would describe that as a national crisis and yeah. I would want to put a huge amount of budget into mm -hmm. sorting that out. Um, you know, it is a crisis for girls. It's not that much better for boys. It's 16% for boys, so it's only twice as much. Um really really worrying what what role does the coverage play well when i look at sports media coverage i looking focusing particularly on girls i still don't think we are reaching girls through our coverage particularly in the newspapers if i pick up a newspaper sports section to me it speaks mainly to a male audience okay as it always has done mm -hmm. and that's you know it's within the fabric of the production it's it's the language, it's the choice of imagery, it's the design of the page. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's something that I've thought more and more deeply about since taking on this role over the last six months. And I've had to work really closely with the with the design department, with writers to try and challenge how do we how do we present sport to a different audience? If mm -hmm. we want to reach women, what do they want to see in their sports coverage? And it, And it's very different. Even some of the most, you know, People like Judy Murray, who eats, sweat and play and breathe and drink sport, <laughs> yeah. you know, would say to me when I asked them, what do you want in your sports coverage? She would say, oh, I want more human stories. I'm not that fussed about all the stats. You know, when you pick up the, yes. the men's Premier League ahead of the new season, it's like a scientific graph about the form and everything. And you just think, <laughs> oh, my God, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, so many, I don't want to stereotype because lots of women do like stats too, mm -hmm. but... A lot of people are saying they just need it presented in a different way. So we have to, I think, acknowledge that, yes, we have increased sponsorship, media coverage, all these mm -hmm. things. But are we really reaching new audiences with this new coverage? I think we are perhaps changing the mindsets of the traditional sports audience. And that's a good thing. And, and hopefully that within that there are influencers and, and policymakers and all the rest of it. But, yeah, we, we need still a more radical approach. Yeah. So to participation, I mean, I have two young daughters. The eldest is nearly eight. You know, she's at a, a lovely school where the teachers are, are brilliant and they're, they're kind of thinking about gender equality and stuff. But across all schools, there remains this fundamental problem that APE and physical education is not seen as a top priority for schools or this is my view, Michelle might have a different one, but... Um, no, agreed, Anna, <laughs> agreed, 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 completely. And I'm not, I'm not doing down PE teachers, but I think there's, you know, there's so many barriers. That it, there's that cycle of teachers who predominantly, particularly at primary level of female, perhaps have had bad experiences with mm. PE and can't connect with it. Yeah. Um, you know, head teachers, similar thing. Um, 
maybe valuing or only seeing sport as that kind of one-dimensional competitive, you win medals, if you're good at it, athletically talented, that's what it's about and not understanding that physical literacy piece and how we relate to our bodies. It's a very fundamental Mm -hmm. thing, not valuing that or understanding that. So there's so much work to be done to change it. And and what frustrates me is when I go go to speak to people in governing bodies, they tell me, oh, things are all changing and it's all great. And I'm like, listen, Mm -hmm. I have a child at school. They are not changing Mm -hmm. this is this amount of years Mm -hmm. on i'm 40 years old now Mm -hmm. things are not changing enough and it it worries me and it troubles me that we're not being radical enough in our Mm. approach okay so just like anna i'm impatient for change (laughs) and i think the fundamentally we have to look at the bigger picture you know government have a a role to play Mm -hmm. we need more collaboration between the services in terms of this is a actually a a public health kind of crisis this is an obesity crisis the chief medical officer recommendation is an hour of physical activity a day Mm -hmm. for young people that's not happening up and down the country we know that we've we've just had the stats around that and so it needs a radical approach but it doesn't need to be kind of really complex this is about a diverse workforce this is about gaps in the workforce at an education level and at a government level as well. Mm -hmm. It's about really understanding the issues. It's about saying we had something in the past like the school sports partnerships that worked with a number of partners, with the school nurses, with local community sports clubs Mm -hmm. and with a youth sport trust, which was the charitable organisation in charge. It worked. Mm -hmm. Actually, we've done something previously that actually we could do again. So there's Mm -hmm. one thing there. Two, there's something about personal responsibility you know culture shifts and things change when people take personal responsibility Mm -hmm. now in the work that I do I have to often kind of I'm often the only person in the room saying the stuff or advocating for equality or whatever it might be and out of that some people are with me and some people are not. I'm not interested in those people that are not with me. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the champions and we go off and we create the projects and or work what we're doing. And so one of the things that I think is, is important is to be able to have PE specialists, people that know what they're doing yep. in schools, delivering high quality PE in school sport mm-hmm. in every single primary school up and down the country. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one big fundamental shift that will make a difference. And I, they need to be working with the public health authorities within those areas to look at the chronic diseases and tackle and target particular families. Years ago, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I'm I'm, I'm quite a bit older than Anna, actually. I developed, (laughs) I developed, well, I think I feel like I am. (laughs) I I developed a programme called Active Families and it was, I was in my second job and I was working in a, a large secondary school and we had all these amazing resources. We had a, a, you know, a gym and I had, you know, I had these families with, with some chronic diseases going on. You know, we had intergenerational worklessness, all sorts going on in that school. And what I did was I used my know-how as a former athlete, to be honest. I thought, well, I'm going to work with a school nurse and I'm going to target some families. And I developed a programme called Active Families. This wasn't Einstein stuff, you know. Mm. And I had two or three families coming in to the um, gym every week. I employed a personal trainer who did a session with them mm. privately in this gym, which was never used in the evenings. Yeah. And they had, and then I brought in doctors who happened to be my friends actually, mm. and they gave talks around these big issues. Now, I, I think this was a program that I did for a couple of years, 
And it was that kind of thing. And then I built on that and I did things around health and beauty and all sorts of different things that were responsive to the community. So we have schools and we have resources in our communities that are completely underused. Mm -hmm. Now, I was in a very fortunate enough position to have power and influence to be able to develop loads of programs like that. And we need to have those kinds of plans in place to adhere to whatever the community needs. And you join that up with what's going on yeah. topically. You know, so our communities are divided in ways that we have no idea, you know, unprecedented, reflective of what's going on with our government, reflective of the times in terms of Brexit. Divisions in our communities are just stark. The, the work that the mayor, the London mayor is doing around looking at policy to do with sport and social integration is tackling some of those big issues because sport provides the environment to just to do just that. Not on its own, but it provides the environment. So I think there are big policy drivers and I think there are, there's personal responsibility and there's something about having the right people in the right place doing the right work. That final point there, the right people, there are lots of really good people Um in this space, but not necessarily in the positions of influence. Um, so in terms of representation, where would some of those... So you you mentioned about PE um, and physical ed coaches or, or trainers in primary schools. When you think about the systems, so the national government, governing bodies, funding, etc., where are some of those key places where you say the representation needs to really drastically change where people that are hired for those posts and not only have positions of power, but are also have a track record of being able to deliver on some of this agenda in terms of engagement, coverage and wider representation. Thinking about primary PE, you know, the primary premium was shoved out by the government, millions and millions of pounds to try and sort out um, the primary sports premium. Um, to try and rectify some of the issues happening at, at primary school level. A huge budget was set aside for it. Wonderful. That that sounds like a great idea. There was no really, there was no strategy around it, no directives about how you use this. So you give a load of money to primary school. You say it has to be spent on sport. And what do they do with it? So many schools said, oh, we've got some money for sport. I'll give it to this private company that sends in private coaches mm. Because I don't know about sport or I don't know about PE. I'm not really, really sure what to do with it. So here's how I'm going to spend it. Mm. What happens then is that you've got a business going into schools. You don't have every other teacher in that primary school setting is attached to the school. They're part of the fabric of the school. The kids see them every single day. They're, you know, they're around. Mm-hmm. Um, there's relationships there. This is somebody who comes in for a session and goes out. Mm-hmm. We had at my daughter's school, for example, three PE teachers, three PE coaches from this place in one year. So they changed PE teacher three times. They were all men. Um, there were issues with them often. They were very young. They didn't. They had no training in gender equality or how to, you know, how to engage pupils that might be struggling with with body image or might be struggling with PE and weren't weren't naturally what we call that stereotype of sporty. Mm-hmm. Why spend all of that money if you don't think cleverly about how it should be used? If you don't really think about what the problem is, the problem isn't just about money. It's about an approach and yeah. about, as you say, who you're going to employ to deliver these sessions, who's making these decisions. So mm-hmm. getting the right people in place is absolutely crucial and at the moment it isn't happening and and it worries me that we think that sport can just be delivered as a business it should not it's a national health priority could you quickly you were talking about the approach could you two 
kind of unpick some of the differences here. Some of it will be really obvious, but if you're going into a school, um, working with girls in primary school, and there is the kind of standard approach to physical activity, what are some of those more nuanced approaches that are more appropriate that at this particular point are not uh, being potentially delivered in um, our mainstream education? I think there's this idea that if you change anything about PE you're choosing between whether it should be competitive or not competitive. Mm -hmm. And that's always the, the conversational debate that I see in the media. And then inevitably an, an elite athlete gets brought in and they say, oh, well, you know, this is ridiculous. Of course, competitive sport is important. Here's all the things it taught me. And it's like that is not the discussion. Yes, we need competitive sport. And I think particularly girls can really, really benefit from, you know, being encouraged to be competitive in sports, a wonderful thing. But it's not a polarised issue um we need to think about physical literacy what does that really mean well the difference is that if you're teaching maths or english you have to work with every single pupil in that class to get them up to a certain standard and they might not be naturally talented at maths or or literacy but you still work with them anyway and you encourage them and you get them to be their best self that isn't happening in pe it's that kind of um, division of you know okay you guys are naturally talented we will focus on you everybody else I'll try and occupy you for the session mm -hmm. and we'll just get through um, there's that lack of appreciation and value really on everybody developing their own physical skills their own relationship with their body and I think it's you know the problem is then compounded when you bring in different issues like race gender cultural issues too mm -hmm. um, and and doubling up on on race and gender together um, for girls but you know girls are going into playgrounds and, and physical spaces where where boys are tending to dominate there's all sorts of research about girls spending more time on the periphery of the the playground and mm -hmm. boys taking up the vast majority of the center of that playground with sport and verbally telling girls that they can't be part of it um, it's a kind of man spreading happening at <laughs> to four and five and six year olds and if that's your message as a very 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 young girl you're straight away being told that, that that space, physical space is not for you and that you should give it up to your male counterparts. I think that's extremely worrying mm -hmm. that we're telling that message to girls and that that's the foundation we're going to send them out into the world with. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think, you know, Anna just really kind of blown me away with her responses because she's nailed everything there. I think <laughs> I think from a, a practitioner's point of view as well, as a you know, as a former primary school teacher, as a former secondary school assistant head, as somebody that's worked at local government um educational senior management, I still and now today, I still go into schools and talk to young women about their engagement with P in sport and what are their barriers. So we can, you know, look at all of the research and there's great research out there. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, just two years ago now, I, I went for some funding. I, I founded a project called the Basketball Inspiration Programme. And I did that because young women were talking to me about how they felt about getting sweaty how they felt about getting out of breath, mm -hmm. how they felt about that the sport wasn't for them. And so I decided to target a particular area where there was high ethnic uh, minority population, mm -hmm. where there was high demo um, issues of obesity, and look at that area in particular and do some work in schools. 
and I took in international basketball players into those schools from those communities mm. and we did an assembly around gender empowerment. I did a whole bit around Serena and her muscles. I did stuff around the uh, England hockey team and, um, and how they feel about their bodies. We talked really openly about body image and the complexities of it and the challenges that they felt as women, as young women taking part in sport. And we devised a programme that was specific to them you know and and I did do some of those things of bringing in you know deodorants and all of the different things mm-hmm. that made them feel comfortable which yeah. were small things actually but had a massive impact mm-hmm. and we took young women that had no interest in PE and they then were able to take part in this this project because they actually heard from role models that looked like them mm-hmm. that spoke like them yeah. and then we were like well I'm doing that coaching and some of the teachers were like I don't understand how you got that did you did you do some like youth work intervention with them Michelle and I was mm-hmm. like no I showed them a role model mm-hmm. and I talked to them about how sport can be a safe space actually and so and we had a coaching masterclass delivered by those basketball players we then had something again at the local basketball club shout out to London Thunder Basketball Club a great <laughs> basketball club we had female basketball coaches and this was a project that just came out of my head mm-hmm. that was responsible that was responsive to the needs of the girls in that community Community. And it had this far-reaching impact, so much so that they wanted us to run it again. British Basketball saw it. They they had a little video created. And British Basketball was like, oh, Michelle, this is great. Here's some tickets for an international basketball game. And I was like, right, I'm taking these young women to basketball now. We went off to the, um, to the copper box and we watched some basketball. And the social capital that that developed in those young women who'd never been to a live sports event. And I've got Lisa Wainwright at the time who was the CEO, yeah. a woman, a powerful woman in a leadership position in governance, in, in sport administration to talk to my girls. And they were like... She's in, she's in charge. They couldn't believe that this woman was in charge. And I got the players to talk to the girls. Some of them have joined the club. Some of them haven't. Some of them have done some other sports. Some of them have just had a really good experience mm-hmm. of sport that is not just for sport's sake. It's about everything else that went around it. We talked about issues to do with identity. We followed it up with workshops around discrimination, around disability, around what does it mean when we talk about self-efficacy? What does it mean to own who you are and actually excel in sport or not excel in sport? That's mm-hmm. that's cool as well. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we can hear the big stories, but actually there are teachers, there are community workers, there are sports development people just like myself doing this kind of work, Sport mm-hmm. for Social Change projects that need the investment, that need the support. And I had to jump through some serious hoops to get a small amount of money to do that piece of work. Mm-hmm. You know, And I know that might be going on to another area, but I think that's an important part of this jigsaw. Can I speak very quickly to your, your own personal experiences? You know, um, Anna, you've got two kids. Michelle, you're working in schools all of the time. When you reflect back to your own personal experiences at school and think about the situation now, what has changed? Because so much of what you guys are talking about is culture change. And it feels like there's been policy changes. There's been good initiatives that probably haven't survived election cycles and all of that. But culturally, has things really fundamentally changed? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, know, I You know, I sit in rooms with people where they have those, you know, thinkings at governing bodies about sports and I'm that person that delivers the, the negative message and I know people hate it. 
Nobody wants to hear. Thanks, Michelle. We want to hear it. High five was going on there, people. (laughs) And, uh, you know, of course, lots of things have changed. You know, we've had the fourth wave of feminism. There's great discussions around um, women of colour. There's so so many LGBT disability. You know, we're getting more sophisticated in the conversations that we're having, and that's a good thing. But, (laughs) you know, I think... If I compare and contrast over the years, you know, I went to school and I bunked all my PE lessons. Um, I Nobody ever complained about it. I think I once had a note home and that was kind of it. I I just was disregarded as, a, as an option for my PE teachers. They weren't interested in me. Um, they thought I might be able to dance, but that was it. Mm. Um, and I, I tried bunking maths and, you know, the school came down on me like a ton of bricks. And the message was very clear. We, want, we need you to be in maths, but we don't really care if you don't go to PE. Um, as Michelle was talking, I was just thinking about a talk that I delivered in, a, in an Olympic borough at a school, secondary school, last year. They asked me to come in and talk about Eat Sweat Play to, to both the boys and girls um, in sort of year nine, year ten, because they were taking them on this this camping trip. Um, and the head had decided this, this camping trip was going to be really important for these teenage kids to, you know, develop something about themselves. And in many ways, I can understand that, right? You take kids out from inner city to a countryside they were going to go to Wales and climb up a mountain camp overnight and come back down that you know I can see how in his mind that would be a transformative experience probably if I did it I would get something out of it mm-hmm. Michelle's shaking her head because she knows you see this is the I difference when you don't have it. somebody who knows <laughs> so I'm like okay so I go in and I speak to everybody and when we get to the towards the end of the session we start talking about this challenge and everybody in the room, I can see from their body, their language, they're like, no. They've shut down. They're like, I'm actually not going to go. They're, the kids have got to the point where they're going to boycott it. Mm-hmm. And some of their parents are actually supportive of them boycotting it. So I'm like, okay, abandon the session. Let me go speak to you. <laughs> I start sitting down with them, boys and girls, but definitely more of the girls. And they start telling me their fears and their concerns. And they're very real, mm-hmm. you know. And some of them are about what society would deem more superficial. But I think... These are very powerful issues. So, for example, you know, some of the girls were saying, I'm not going to be able to have my full face of makeup, my eyelashes that I put on. You know, nobody's ever seen me like that before. I'm not sure how they'll respond to me. Others were worried about what if I can't do it? What if I can't physically climb the hill? What if I fall over in the mud? What if I do things wrong? I'll be judged. I'll be laughed at. And this is such a precarious time in a in a young person's life you know where you're worried about all of those things and social judgment and all of that and I just felt like I said to the head teacher why why are you making them do this they they don't want to do it they're not ready for it it's not part of their their culture everyone I spoke to had never been camping before their parents didn't go camping a lot of them had never even been you know far outside of London in exploring the UK countryside I was like this is too much and the head teacher said to me I'm I really want them to find their grit. I've told them that it's a challenge and they need to prove themselves. Wow. I was like, oh, my goodness, of course they don't want to go. <laughs> like, if someone said that to me, I would run a mile away. And also that, you know, it's so polarised. This is the only way for you to prove your worth and your determin- determination and grit. Like, mm-hmm. there's no other way for you to do it in my eyes. That's so restrictive. Mm-hmm. You're not giving people um, a great stage for them to, to, to blossom on. And mm-hmm. I just thought that was awful. And it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
their smiles, mm. slightly pained smiles yeah. in the studio I've got at the moment. Nose. I've got nightmares of those, you know, go camping. I've never been camping. I've only went, been camping once and I hated it with, like, with uh, all my might and never again. So, yeah, sorry, that's just me. But there is something about residential trips do unlock learning potential for young people. Mm-hmm. But it's the right residential trip. It's understanding yeah. your community, understanding what it is that they w- would, uh, you know, would get the most from Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so head teachers have a huge amount of power. It's interesting though the background of the most successful head teachers have a background in sports. Yes, I've and, heard of that. And yeah. and actually, they understand that sport, the environment that sport gives young people, can create those transformational moments for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really about the decisions that that head teacher makes are really fundamental, and the senior leadership teams and how they can influence those head teachers. Mm-hmm. I want to speak very quickly, but also relevant in terms of culture change um, and in terms of female athletes and how they have been represented, stroke misrepresented over the years. So Serena Williams has been someone that has had to endure some horrific coverage in the press historically. And, you know, some of that narrative has changed. That narrative has changed largely because of who she is and what she is. Um and we've seen it with other female athletes in terms of the culture change in terms of how women are represented commercially in the press in the media what are some of the things that really needs to change and you know serena's amazing but for every serena there are plenty other female athletes who also get really bad publicity that that you know, haven't been able to endure through that. What are some of the things that needs to change um, in terms of that? Because I think that does have a really massive effect on participation and also just how young girls will perceive sport. I think we want to, as a society, and particularly a media sort of machine, we try to squash our female athletes Mm -hmm. into a kind of box. There's a certain type of acceptable female athlete that can be celebrated she should be feminine in a certain way with kind of western beauty ideals um and in particular she should be likable and if she's not likable we don't like her and if we don't like her all hell breaks loose and we've seen that with serena so many times and we've seen it with other athletes over the summer particularly with um, megan rapino there was this clip that circulated on on twitter um, where she was at some kind of big fancy event after winning the World Cup and, and a boy goes up to her with a ball to sign um, and she kind of signs the ball and then she looks away from him and hands it back to him. Now that clip went viral, my goodness. There was like, I don't know, 60,000 likes on it or something crazy and it was all about how I knew she was a horrible person. You can mm. see she doesn't even look at that child when she gives the football back to him. She doesn't look at him. Mm. And what actually was going on in that clip when you switch the sound on, most people don't <laughs> look at, the, don't listen, uh, don't have the sound on with social media. Um, it was a loud announcement because she was uh, a TV show was about to start, and she turns to look towards where the noise is coming from and hands the ball back because the countdown is happening. They're about to go live on air. That's the sort of simple explanation to what happened. But the fact that a seven-second clip of somebody and which way they look when they give a ball back Mm -hmm. can, for so many people, define who that person is and what we should think of them, disregarding every single one of their achievements, how many medals she's won, what she's done for gender equality, you know, kneeling for Black Lives Matter or refusing to sing the anthem, all of those things, LGBT rights, uh, challenging the US president, for Mm -hmm. goodness sake, 
all fly out the window mm -hmm. because of one sort of social politesse or ideas about how women should behave. And I think we do that to women all the time. We want them to shut up and be nice. And, mm -hmm. and we base our decision on whether we like them or not based on whether they, they behave in this very restrictive way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that those what Anna talks about there is those those moments where female athletes actually are redefining the boundaries mm -hmm. and you know Serena is an amazing example of that and the cost that it comes at for them is mm -hmm. is often you know public acclaim whether they're liked or disliked um and the thing that you know that I love about Serena and Megan if you like and a lot of those female athletes in who are standing up and being counted is that they're unapologetically doing so mm -hmm. you know this is who I am this is what I represent Serena was just in that um the, the press interview recently about she was asked about whether when she's when is she going to you know, when is she going to stop this equality stuff? So the entitlement, <laughs> the entitlement of that journalist. And it's like, it's like, are you crazy? Serena was like, when I die, do you know what I mean? How does that work? It's like, can we take off our blackness? Can we take off our womanhood? I mean, it's just, mm. it's astounding, but it, it, it shows so clearly the issues. And we only need to think back to, you know, not just when she just played, but last year's uh, US Open and the 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 way in which the media responded to, yes. to her outburst, which was on court and everything that went on with Naomi Osaka there and how actually all black women could relate to that that issue that you, you stand up, you're counted, you, you challenge something that's you deem to be unfair and then you you get, you know, attacked and called a cheater and your behaviour is scrutinised in a way that says you are not allowed to be angry. Mm. You know, as a black woman, you cannot afford to be angry. Let's be clear. Um, and so the ramifications of that were massive. And so I think what it's we... It's the double standard. It is the double and standard. And highly racialised yeah, as well. Yeah, of yep. course. And and how that, that plays out for somebody like Serena compared to somebody like Megan is also interesting yep. to, to kind of, uh, you know, dovetail together. And, you know, and also, you know, we're far less resourced than men. So when I wrote No Win Race, one of the things that was really apparent for me was um, Eniola Aluko and the case of the FA, um, which was an important case. And I think opened the door for a lot of the activism that's happening now. Um, you wouldn't hear it so much now because of what Raheem Sterling's doing now. And, and there's lots of men that are doing great stuff. But it's always apparent to me this was also happened in the WNBA you had lots of women who I think on average get paid a hundred or the highest get paid $110,000 where their male counterparts get um, something like 25 to 28 million dollars per year but they were the first ones mm. to be the most active voices around um, protesting mm. um, so it also feels like female athletes are, are silenced quite a bit and their activism is silenced quite a bit or undermined. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, and I think even if they were vocal, perhaps we um, we haven't given the platform to them to be vocal and with the growth of social media and, and the newer interest in, in women's sports stars, that, that is changing too. 
But when I think about perhaps, you know, Ennio Luluco is obviously famous for that case and, and whistleblowing and it, it made the news at 10. It was on the front pages the first time that I'm not sure I've really seen women's football ever presented in that way before or, or those discussions um, had at that level. It was at a very senior level that it went to DCMS investigation, Damian yeah. Collins grilling the FA bods. Um, it was it was huge a huge moment but her activism before then wasn't really reported on you know she she acted um on behalf of her teammates to get better pay and to get better contracts um to get better maternity rights all of those mm. things were you know kind of hidden away but th- those are crucial um human rights for for sportswomen that she was changing mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Eniola has been a pioneer in so many ways. And she, and today we're just thinking about the impact that she's had. And at the release of her book, shows yeah. and her, her, you know, real commitment and passion to women's sport. I always remember she was one of the first female, she was the first female pundit on Match of the she Day. She was, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, that was hugely significant seeing her face and, and, and everything that went with the excellence of black excellence in any being any, you mm-hmm. know, and I, you know, I'm very fortunate to work with young people and they look to her as a role mm-hmm. model, as, yeah. as, as a dark skinned black woman mm-hmm. who is killing it in, in, in every <laughs> single way. So yeah. I have huge respect for her. I, um, I, I was very fortunate to be honoured with a football blacklist award back in uh, 2017. And I dedicated my award uh, to her because mm-hmm. For her to stand up in the way that she has done to to challenge uh, inequalities, but over years and years and years yeah. has has been a real inspiration to me and to many others. And I think when we have our own homegrown superstars like that, mm-hmm. it's really important to celebrate them, to acknowledge them, to recognise them. And we often look to the States for our black female uh, activists and male activists. And actually, she's right here. You know, mm-hmm. she, she grew up on a housing estate in Birmingham. She talks about... Uh, her kind of co- her identity as a British Nigerian, proud Nigerian, and everything that went with just being a woman mm-hmm. trying to fit in as a young woman playing football as a as the only girl on the team, mm-hmm. and and what that brought out for her. So, mm-hmm. I I think that we need more any Ola Lucas. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that we celebrate her and that we we really understand her experience and the nuances of of what has gone into making her the brilliant um, role model that she is today. Well, I, I'm going to ask an impossible question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Oh, only uh, you <laughs> would. Only you would, Derek. I mean, what does... What will good look like? You know, and I'm talking across the piece, um, you know, in education, in in press coverage, in terms of the media, you know, what would you guys like to see? Do we need a title nine over here? You know, what what what, what would you say good looks like? What you, will you guys uh, perceive as being really good in four to five years time, for example? Um, I don't know if it's achievable in four to five years' time, but for me, it's about the normalisation of of seeing women's bodies and girls' bodies in their natural way. And I think sport, physical activity and the depiction of it and and the engagement of it is just absolutely vital in making that happen. And in some ways, it sounds like a pretty sad thing to have to ask for. You know, we just want it to be normal. But in other ways, it's, it's so fundamentally profound 
Um, if women can be at home in their bodies, if they can find strength in their bodies, women are routinely and girls oppressed through their bodies every single day and abused through their bodies. So I think if we can find and reach that place, it will just have a revolutionary radical effect around the world. Excellent. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the policing of women's bodies is a massive issue. I think Sport England did a great campaign, This Girl Can. I'd love to see more of those um, up and down the country. But we, it's something we haven't touched on. And I know it's a little bit dry and boring, but I think there's something about the governance of sport in this country mm -hmm. is run by white middle class men. And mm -hmm. when we change the diversity and represent, representation of people making the decisions in media, in governance, in the governance of sport, then we can see a shift in the dial because then that can have a knock-on effect at the different levels within sport. So if we can really get some proper representation at the top, that then feeds into the senior levels of people working in sport and then the middle management. And then you get these, the decisions that are made are actually reflective of our communities. And then from that point, you just have a completely different way of working because we know diversity trumps all things, all talent, everything, every single time. And that business case is well rehearsed, but it's not in, a, in any kind of way being implemented. And so a lot of the things that we've talked about today in terms of policy, in terms of government, yep. in terms of grassroots, in terms of what's going on in schools, is actually kind of lends it, uh, is all related to the governance and the diversity and representation piece. Before we conclude, I just want to find out more about what you guys are doing. So Anna, I know you're doing you know, work at The Telegraph and leading that massive change there at The Telegraph. But beyond that, I know, you know the work you're doing with women in football. What are some of the other uh, campaigns and, and initiatives that you're working on at this particular point? I have to say I am fully head down <laughs> in, in women's sports coverage at okay. the moment and it's and and that has dominated everything so I've taken a bit of a step back from women in football okay. and all other campaigns and just trying to focus on asking these really fundamental questions about women's sports coverage okay. how do we speak to to a new female audience how do we change the the diversity of the sports desk and mm -hmm. that's, that needs to be quite a radical act and and luckily they're on they're on board with that which is great but um there's a lot of work to do around <laughs> around that to change things michelle so i as a speaker and a coach i do a lot of work as uh, an activist kind of calling out injustice working with national governing bodies and international sport federations to do just that and I uh, also run leadership seminars. I'm promoting one at the moment called yeah. More of You. It's uh, a personal effectiveness and leadership program for women who are looking to exceed expectations and break down barriers. And so that's something that I'm holding in October. People mm -hmm. can check it out on social media, www.michellemore.me. And I'm continue just to, continuing to try and make myself a... Um, troublesome to the people in, in power um, yes. constantly getting in trouble for that quoted in the Daily Telegraph recently for the uh, saying that there's a lack of representation on this new board the FA's kind of introduced to take forward the women's game mm. um, so yeah so I'm doing some exciting things internationally and I work with different organisations like the Fair Network to really challenge inequalities where I see them Excellent. Um, thank you both for coming in. I really appreciate it. And um, thank you for listening to Just Cause with Derek A. Bardwell. If you like this pod, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. It really helps. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Derek A. Bard, D-E-R-E-K-A-B-A-R-D. And I will see you soon. Thank you. <laughs>